So I remembered why I chose Warhammer for a second over Hellboy. I wanted something I could do with my brother and maybe with other people as well. That was kind of cool and grimdark and awesome. Uh, comics is, is a good one. I could do that with my brother, but like, I don't know. I've never sat and read with him. I don't think it's kind of a shared activity. You just kind of talk about the books after, don't you? But um, I was thinking I might do, maybe, maybe do Battletech. I've got three books at the minute. Audible, and this is the problem with Hellboy at the moment, uh, I can't do it next week anyway because Audible's going to take a tenner off me, so I can't. Um, but if Audible doesn't take that tenner, then yeah, I could, but it will. They're going to take the tenner. So Audible's going to take a tenner off me So because um, obviously I've signed up to that. So I'm probably going to do uh, get some Battletech books and uh, have a look at that just to see what I think about it. I've got three books of it already, um, Blood of Kerensky and the first three. But I'll get, I'll get like another f four. So, so far I'm really enjoying it. And I know, I know the next bit, cause I think I remember, I remember reading this bit before, uh, or, or looking at this book before, uh, at one point. And I, I know the next scene, uh, but I don't know much beyond that. So I'm going to do it properly this time. And th this scene, the next scene, they're all insanely good. The the character, I, I, I mean, I come back to it now that I've been doing a lot of audio novels. I really do appreciate it. the characters are so well written. It's not just the mechs. The main, I think the main thing is your characters and your pilots, but the, it's all really well written. And um, yeah, like obviously there'll be a lot of mechs and stuff later on, but uh, for now we're talking about the Kelhounds pilot, uh, Kalen Fell. And uh, Kalen, Kalen, uh, Phelan Kel, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, but it's it's good. I'm going to do all the books and I'll, I'll put them all on here as, as and when they come out on Audible. There's like eight at the moment, I think. Yeah, eight. Eight that you can get. A bunch of them are in uh, different languages, but there's eight in my language. And um, I'm going to pick those up uh, when they eventually give me my money back because they've not given me my money yet. So when they give me my money, I'll get those. So yeah, hopefully I can get my, my money sorted. Um sort of uh sort of uh this week if not that's meh but i'm hoping to get it sorted this week um but yeah i'll get the books and i might get a few of them, a few of them as ebooks and read and actually reread read those um but i'll i'll be butchering them I will, uh, forewarning, because, you know, I've got about one, two, three, four. I've got more than eight cracks across my screen. Just eight big ones, though. In the late 28th century, the Star League collapsed, and the five successor states emerged. Three centuries of fighting, alliances made and broken, have left these rulers of the inner sphere vulnerable. Now, an enemy has arisen that threatens to destroy them all. The clans. Descendants of a Star League general, these bioengineered soldiers bring a ruthless efficiency to war, and it seems that none can resist the juggernaut of their invasion. Defiance Audio presents Battletech.
outreach to Kanaw Free Republic, 16 August, 3031. Natasha Kerinsky walked into Colonel Jamie Wolfe's office. The leader of the mercenary Wolfe's Dragoons had lived up to his namesake during the recent succession wars. I thought you'd want to see this immediately, Jamie. The Takanov Republic has, at Prince Hans Davion's suggestion, given us free and clear title to outreach. The news brought animation back to Wolf's face. Long years of almost constant warfare had taken their toll. The lines creasing his forehead showed how heavy had been the weight of his burdens. He gave her a tired smile. Yes, Natasha. Thank you. This is welcome news indeed. Kerensky glanced out the window. I thought we'd have had more trouble getting this world for our home. I assumed Hans Vivian would be determined to keep it once he heard we wanted it. Wolf shrugged. Davion is well aware that Outreach was once the warrior world. He knows that not quite all of the useful equipment has been stripped from it in the three centuries since General Kerensky and his Star League troops left the Inner Sphere forever. Kerensky turned to face him. Do you think Davion knows exactly how much equipment is left? Wolf smiled like a man with a secret. Hans must certainly expect that we've withheld some information, but I don't think it matters to him. He's happy to have us here because it prevents local rebellions or a strike from the Free Worlds League. Kerensky's tone was worried. Is our own survey complete yet? Is there enough equipment here for our needs? Wolf shook his head. We've got the facilities we need to repair and manufacture battle mix, but whether it's enough to complete our mission is hard to say. She answered with irritation. You can't still be clinging to the idea that we have a mission, can you? Wolf smiled again in spite of himself. Natasha, you know we've been entrusted with a duty that we cannot abandon. Natasha leaned forward over the desk. It's impossible, Jamie. That's what I know. For the last 25 years, we fought for every great house in the Inner Sphere, and we fought against every house, too. We know their strengths and weaknesses. We know it's hopeless. Wolf stood abruptly. It's not hopeless, Natasha. Some of them show promise. She greeted his claim with a sharp laugh. So I thought I'd play that and just to tease the Battletech universe. It actually looks pretty cool uh, so far. It's really well written. It's interesting. It's got that 80s vibe and I love the 80s. Did you just miss the last two years, Jamie? The Capellan Confederation has all but fallen to the Federated Sons. The Draconis Combine has lost dozens of worlds and crack units. The Lyran Commonwealth was almost split apart by the war. Hans Davion may have planned this war well, and his Federated Sons come out the big winner. But he's raised his economy, and his people are afraid of another Comstar interdiction. Wolf's eyes flashed at her badgering tone. Haven't you left out some of the more important factors that concern us? The Kelhound war in good shape, as have the Eridani Light Horse and the Northwind Highlanders. Natasha seated herself on the edge of Wolf's desk. You're not thinking of bringing them here to train, are you? You are planning to do that, aren't you? 
That's why Morgan Cal and his wife Salome are already heading here. How much does Cal know? Wolf looked at her steadily. Morgan Cal knows what I've trusted him with. I've not told Morgan everything, though I imagine he has figured it out. I believe Morgan might be persuaded to prepare his forces to help us when the time comes. Natasha snorted in response. The next thing I expect to hear you say is that you're going to invite Comstar to set up a communication center here on Outreach. <laughs> Not a chance. Their pacifism died with Primus Tiepolo. The new press, this Mindo Waterly, is aggressive and dangerous. Natasha smiled. Ah, thank God you are sane after all. They were right to put you and not me in charge of this fool's mission. If they're going to come, I only hope they come soon, before I'm too old to pilot a mech. Wolf turned and looked out the window. They're coming all right, and it may be sooner than we think. The succession wars just ended will seem like the overture to the end of mankind when the clans arrive. Tortelar City, Goonsburg, Rodstad Province, Free Rosalhag Republic, 19 May, 3049. Eighteen years later. Phelan Kell, son of the famed Morgan Kell and feared member of the mercenary Kellhounds, hunched his shoulders against the cold, then fished mittens from his pockets. As he crossed the snow-dusted street and started back toward the outskirts of Stortelar City, the holographic display on the wall of a building flashed the image of a silver-maned, gray-bearded man dressed in a military uniform. As the man began to speak, the translation scrolled across the bottom of the screen. It was an admonishment by the planet's military governor, the Vald Hera, that the people of Rosalhag must pull together to help create an even stronger union. During the ad, the camera panned back just enough to make it plain that the man was seated in a wheelchair. Phelan shook his head. Trust or Miraborg never to miss a chance to remind people that he lost the use of his legs fighting for their freedom. Stepping into the mouth of an alley, Phelan thrust his hands deeper in his pockets as he walked. The stars exploded into shimmering blue balls as a fist slammed into his head. His feet slipped on the icy layer beneath the powdered snow on the ground, and he crashed heavily to the roadway. Phelan shook his head to clear it. His attempt to concentrate was interrupted by a booted kick to his stomach. A wave of nausea washed through him as he rolled onto one side and then vomited. Snow crunched beneath his attacker's booted feet as the man closed for another kick. Phelan, lying on his right side, scythed his legs backward through his foe's shins, dumping the man onto his face. Phelan rolled to his back and snapped his left heel down onto the base of the man's spine. A harsh cry of anger and pain told him he'd hurt his foe. Unsteadily gaining his feet, Phelan spat at the ground. Out of the shadows on the darkened street, human forms moved forward. Phelan's heart sank. Four. No. Five. Mercenary scum! Someone cursed. Take our money! Take our women! We don't need your kind here! Phelan... <laughs>
Dylan let his head bob for a moment, as though the effects of the initial blow had not worn off yet. As they moved toward him, Balin slid a half step to the right and jabbed straight out at his nearest attacker. His punch crushed the man's nose. The man spun away, careening into a second attacker and knocking him aside. Phelan pivoted on his right foot, lashing out with his left to catch another man in the throat. Spitting and coughing, that man went down. The centermost man, a bull-necked individual, charged in low and Phelan straightened him up with a knee to the face, but the man's bulk just carried him forward. He locked his arms around Phelan's waist, pinning the mercenary in place as the other vigilantes closed in. A bolt of pain shot up Phelan's spine and exploded in his brain. His pelvis felt as if it had been shattered. Time slowed as someone's hand slammed into Phelan's eye, and he was dropped on the ground. Sprawled out like a dead man, Phelan's view of the world started to spin. Fingers tangled themselves in his hair and pulled him to a sitting position. A slow chuckle reached his ears. <laughs> Should have stayed where you wanted, outcast. At the sound of police sirens keening in the distance, his assailant smiled. Then fists fell again, and again on Phelan's bruised body as he lost consciousness. Tyra's mouth soured with fear as the Jarlvards opened the door and pushed Phelan Kell, half naked and barefoot, into the Varldhera's anteroom. Phelan stumbled forward a few steps, his gait hobbled by chains. Tyra shuddered at the sight of the man who had been her lover. My God, Phelan, what have they done to you? Dozens of purplish bruises mottled the smooth flesh of her chest. Both his eyes had been blackened when nearly swollen shut. One of the Yarlvards raised a hand to cuff him, but Tyra barked, No! The man stopped and looked at her. Free him! I am not obliged to obey you, Captain. The Yarlvard sneered officiously. I serve the Corrections Ministry, which puts me outside your command. Tyra stared at him furiously. Do you really want to see how fast I can arrange for a transfer? Now free him! She smiled humorlessly. And give him your jacket. <laughs> the Arlvards complied, and Tyra dismissed the man with a wave of her hand. Leave us. As the door clicked shut, she crossed to the bench and sat next to Phelan. She started to reach out to him, then hesitated. I want to hold you, but I'm afraid it will hurt. Phelan smiled, but it was lost within the bloated, discolored flesh of his eyes. Uh, I could definitely use a hug. Uh, just go easy on the ribs. Tyra held him as tightly as seemed safe, stroking his hair. After several moments, she leaned back and tipped his face up to the light. How did this happen? He shrugged. I was off the reservation and got jumped by a bunch of folks. Uh, they knew about us and that I'd asked you to join the Kellhounds. They took exception to that. A big guy with a Rod Stott Academy scar on his left cheek organized the little party. I figure I'll look him up and settle our account after we return from the periphery. Tyra flinched at Phelan's use of the word we. Um, just quickly, there we go. He saw and turned away from her. You're not coming, are you? Tyra looked down at her hands. 
I am honored and flattered that you managed to make room for me in the Kellhounds. It's not that I couldn't handle the idea of being a mercenary. It's the idea of becoming a person without a nation that I couldn't live with. Phelan frowned. What are you talking about? I was born on Ark Royal. I'm a citizen of the Lyran Commonwealth. I have my loyalties. Tyra's blue eyes narrowed. Do you, Phelan? To a nation? You've told me yourself how much traveling you've done in your life. The Hounds have seen service in the Federated Sons, the Lyran Commonwealth, and then the St. Ives Compact since your birth. You have loyalties, but they are to your family and your friends. Is that bad? Tyra took his left hand in hers and gave it a squeeze. No, not in itself. But it can get you into trouble. It got you bounced from Nagaring Academy. Phelan's face closed. And it made me lose you. Tyra quickly kissed him. He swept her into a bear hug, hanging on tightly until she actually felt the tremors of strain in his body. She rubbed both hands on his back, then eased herself out of his grasp. We'd best head into the office for our joint audience. Phelan was smiling again. Tyra winked, took his left hand, and led the way into the Vald Hera's office. Seated behind a massive mahogany desk, Tor Miraborg, hero of the independence and ruler of Rosalhag, did not look up as they entered. His gray jacket matched the color of his hair and beard, except for the black whiskers running down either side of his mouth. I trust you found our accommodations to your liking, Herr Kell. Just going to pause it there for a quick second because I want to go get a uh, another dog end. Um, and that's disgusting, but still, I need to have a cigarette. Uh, and they've not paid me, uh, so yeah. Um, it's bloody good though. The use of the voices is really, really good. Your side of his mouth. I trust you found our accommodations to your liking, Herr Kell. Phelan straightened up as though his body didn't hurt him. Room service and stellar, but the complimentary massages were fun. Miraborg rolled himself back from the desk, bringing his wheelchair into view. I'm glad you liked them, Kel, because you'll have plenty of more time for enjoyment. The Kelhounds are leaving today, but you'll not be with them. You'll be bound over for trial. No, Tyra's voice filled the room. No, you will not bind Phelan over for trial. Betrayal threaded through Miraborg's voice. How dare you speak to me in that tone? I dare, Father, to prevent you from doing something that would disgrace you and your government. How could I be more disgraced than to have my daughter sleeping with the mercenary scum that crippled me? Tyra's slap rocked to her Miraborg's head back. Then she turned and walked away from him. Her father's voice, softer, reached out to her. I'm... I'm sorry, Tyra. I didn't think. Then his tone regained its edge. Kel, the charges against you will be dropped. He reached into a desk drawer. I believe these are yours. Phelan's Kelhound insignia slid across the desktop. Phelan shook his head. No, Miraborg, you keep them. To the victor go the spoils. Someday I'll come back for them. You do that. Phelan turned and rested his hands on Tyra's shoulders. I'm sorry the way things turned out, but I'll never regret what we had. He kissed her on the forehead 
and then was gone. As the door shut, Miraborg smiled coldly. Good. Now things can return to normal around here. Despite her pain and hurt, Tyra kept her voice even. I don't think so, Father. I would be leaving Gunsberg. What? He shot a horrified glance at the door. You cannot go with them, Tyra. I will not allow it. How could you do this to me? Not to worry, Father. I am not joining the Kelhounds, though their offer did sorely tempt me. I am too much your daughter to do that. Her father's face had gone ashen. Why, then? I've always tried to make things good for you. Tyra looked at her father sympathetically. Yes, father, you have, especially after mother died. But you've changed. I remember being proud of you. People rallied around you, and you reestablished order, and you became a symbol. Because people thought you hated mercenaries, they hated mercenaries. But you didn't blame all mercenaries for your wounding. There was once a time when you acknowledged that. She pointed to the scar on the left side of his face. Young men and women maimed themselves to look like you and proclaimed their willingness to sacrifice themselves as you did. An air of defeat hung over Miraborg as he turned his chair and faced her. Now you say you are leaving. She looked up. I have requested and been granted a transfer to the first Razo Dragons. The hint of a smile graced her father's lips. Ah, the prince's honor guard. Tyra smiled solemnly. A promotion that should make you proud. Again, you sacrifice part of your life for the greater good of free Razohawk. Miraborg looked away. Will you ever come home? Tyra winced to realize she no longer considered Goonsburg her home. I don't know. She waited for her father to speak, but he turned his chair away. Triad, Tharkad City, Tharkad, District of Donegal, Lyran Commonwealth. So a bit of battle tech, I'm going to sit, because uh, obviously Jamie's chilling in the room with me, so we'll do some battle tech together, yeah? Hey, will you ever come home? Tyra winced to realize she no longer considered Goonsburg her home. I don't know. She waited for her father to speak, but he turned his chair away. Triad, Tharkad City, Tharkad. District of Donegal, Lyran Commonwealth, 20 June, 3049. Victor Steiner Davion paced before his father. I don't see why I should be exiled to some backwater. I want to be on the Combine border. I want to be stationed where I can see some action. Victor's father, Prince Hans Davion, raised an eyebrow. You'll see plenty of action out there, Victor. <laughs> sure, periphery pirates. Victor pointed to the map of the successor states that was tacked to the wall of his room and stabbed his finger at the border between the Commonwealth's Isle of Skye and the Combine's Dairon Military District. This is where you need me. We all know that when trouble erupts, it will be here. Damn it, I trained to be a mech warrior. Hans Davion shook his head. Ah, the impetuosity of youth. Victor winced. Why is it so important for me to be stationed on Trail 1? Hans Davion's blue eyes narrowed. I believe you are well aware, my son, that dealing with the Draconis Combine has never been easy. 
The prince rose and stared at the map. When Theodore Carita posted his son to Turtle Bay with the Combine's 14th Legion six months ago, I felt he was sending us a signal. Victor stepped back from his father and tugged at the wrists of his coat. So you will send me up there to suggest to Theodore that you will answer him in kind? Hans shook his head. Both you and Hohiro Karita are very good at what you do. If Theodore wishes our differences settled by the two of us, he will strike at the Isle of Skye. If he wants to leave our conflict to future generations, his son will strike at me. Victor's blue eyes narrowed. The prince looked at his son. In my day, some considered me a military genius. My tactics in the Fourth Succession War worked because they hit at weaknesses my enemies had not recognized. Just ten years later, in the War of 3039, Theodore Carita saw the flaws in my tactics and pointed them out to me in a most dramatic manner. Given the nearly even exchange of worlds, the war looked like stalemate. But we were all shocked that Carita could so successfully turn back the combined armies of the Federated Sons and the Lyran Commonwealth. Hans sighed heavily. The time for me to plan and execute a war is passing. Passing to you. When you take the throne, you can decide when or where or even if to strike. If you become a great warrior, you will make me very proud. If you never fight a war, I will be just as proud. Hans looked at his chronometer. It's past time. Your mother's Liberty Meadows banquet is starting. He winked at Victor. If we miss it, your mother will have our heads. Victor pointed toward the door. Then let's go. He turned to his father. Do you think I'll have to preside over similar occasions on Trell 1? Hans shook his head. Out there, I doubt it. Victor laughed and closed the door behind them. There is a silver lining to this cloud after all. Giridea Space, Scandia, Isle of Sky, Lyran Commonwealth, 30 July, 9. A thrill ran up Kai Allard's spine as he stepped into the mech bay's shadowy interior. He was the son of Justin Allard, Hans Davion's spy master, but he had earned his own respect for his tactical skills. Battle mechs ranging in height from 9 to almost 12 meters towered above him. Some were of humanoid design, with the look of men in giant powered armor. Others resembled fierce animals or monstrous insects. Still others stood on bird-like legs. Their squat, compact bodies sprouted stubby wings that bristled with laser ports and missile pods in most cases. A sergeant led Kai back through row upon row of mechs. At one point, he plucked a thick vest from a basket and tossed it back to mech warrior. Gray ballistic cloth formed the garment's outer layer. The interior was a layer of black Gore-Tex. Between the layers ran tubes of coolant fluid that helped the pilot's body deal with the incredible heat buildup in the battle mechs. The sergeant stopped before a centurion mech. It lacked the bulkiness of some other humanoid mechs, but the autocannon muzzle that replaced its right hand would never let anyone mistake it for a living creature. This is it, isn't it, Lieutenant? This is the Yenlo Wong? Kai spoke softly. Yenlo Wong, the Chinese god of the dead, the king of the nine hells. The sergeant patted Yenlo Wong on the foot with affection. 
I never thought I'd ever see this baby up close. I'll be in the targeting course control tower, sir. Call me on TACCOM 27 when you're ready to roll. Kai quickly scaled the ladder. Once inside the mech's cockpit, the polarized fate light slid down and clicked into place. Sealed tightly, the cockpit pressurized itself, making Kai's ears pop. He flipped the switch that started the fusion reactor burning, fastened the crisscrossing key belts, and snapped the cooling vest's power cord into the coupling on the command couch. Reaching up and behind his head, Kai pulled down his helmet and settled it down over his head. Then he reached out and touched a glowing yellow button on his command console. The computer's synthesized voice filled his neuro helmet. I am Yanlo Wang, who presents himself to the King of the Nine Hells. I am Kai Allard Liao. After a moment, the computer replied. Voice print pattern obtained. Authorization confirmed. He keyed the radio. Centurion to course control. Can you read me? Just got here, Lieutenant. You all set? All systems go. Good. Just walk it for the first click, then you can take it up to cruising speed. The gunnery course is mostly scrap steel structures with sensor pods that will make your mech put targets up on the display. Roger. Guy hit two buttons on the command console to the right. The computer reported that the mech's trio of active weapon systems were primed and ready. Then the Centurion strode boldly and smoothly from the mech bay. Kai punched another button the command console. A computer-generated data display provided a full 360-degree view of the area surrounding the Centurion. Huge metal feet pounded through the icy crust of early winter. As the speed crept up to the mech's maximum ground speed of 64.8 kph, I felt his heart begin to race. The sergeant's voice crackled out of the speaker. All systems are fine, Centurion. Fifteen seconds to range on my mark. Mark. Good luck. Kai brought up the crosshairs that targeted the autocannon and the forward laser. The computer immediately highlighted a goblin medium tank. Kai dropped the forward crosshairs onto its projected image, let them pulse bright gold for a second, then stabbed his thumb down on the firing button. With a thunderous roar, Centurion's autocannon sprayed out a stream of depleted uranium projectiles. The tank exploded in a cloud of metal shrapnel. Almost instantly, off to the left, the computer painted a Valkyrie mech. Kai swept the gold cross over to cover it and snapped off a shot with the chest-mounted medium laser. The ruby beam shot low, vaporizing snow into great gouts of live steam. With his left hand, Kai shifted the display from vislight to magnetic resonance. He brought up the crosshairs and triggered the autocannon again. Through the display, he saw steel cross braces spark and snap as the heavy weapon shell slammed through the Valkyrie. The computer identified another imaginary threat, and then another one after that. Kai, acting without thinking, sped through the danger. Sweat pouring off him like rain, Kai laughed aloud. I feel like I've been resurrected. That felt great. The sergeant came back over the radio. Your time score ratio is only 20 points behind the base record. Kai smiled broadly. Thank you, sergeant. We'll have to realign and recalibrate the forward laser. And I can't bypass the target, then take it out with the rear laser. Yes, sir. See you down in the mech bay. Roger. Kai headed the Centurion back into base.